to patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. Well, we are back with Mr. Travis Dunn. Uh, he is a plaintiff's attorney in Oklahoma, talking with us about some of the details of the Alexis Ochoa case. And we wanted to kind of start talking a little bit about some of the nuances of expert witnesses, because the you you ha- you called several witnesses. You had physicians, but then the I guess the defense had a nurse practitioner expert witness. And tell us a little bit about first of all, what how it, difficult is it to to do expert witnessing when it comes to a nurse practitioner? Does it have to be a physician? Does it have to be a nurse practitioner? Explain a little bit more about that. Well, you know, everything is different in different states. Um, medical negligence is driven by state law. Uh, in Oklahoma, a, only a physician can testify to causation as to the pulmonary embolism caused the death. And as the standard of care, there it's a little bit of a gray area when it comes to nurse practitioners. The defense believes that only a nurse practitioner can testify to the standard of care applicable to the nurse practitioner. So we call the nurse practitioner to testify to the standard of care, but we also call a physician because it was our philosophy that the healthcare corporation doesn't get to adjust the standard of care. The standard of care that a patient should expect going into an emergency room is the standard of care, period. doesn't matter whether you attempt to meet that standard with a nurse practitioner or you actually have a physician. So that was our philosophy, but and I think it's, it put the defense in a difficult position because if they if their nurse practitioner testified to a different standard of care, it kind of illustrates our point, right? So if, if the nurse practitioner testified, well, I didn't know to do that because I'm just a nurse practitioner, then that shows, well, you shouldn't have been in that position. But I think as a technical matter, the law requires a nurse practitioner to testify to the standard of care of a nurse practitioner. But we approached it as it's not the standard of care for the provider, is what is the standard of care for a patient walking into the emergency Fortunately for us, uh, well, I think it's fortunate, I think it's the way it should be, that both matched up. I mean, the, the pulmonary embolism should have been diagnosed. The D-dimer should have been ordered. The CT scan should have been ordered. The PE should have been diagnosed, should have been treated, should have lived. doesn't matter who's treating it. And by approaching it that way, we put the defendant in a bit of a spot because if, if Wendy Wright had said, well, I didn't know that I was supposed to do a D-dimer because I'm just a nurse practitioner, then that would have illustrated the point that a physician should be in that position. So we call, so I don't know if I answered your question or not. (laughs) Well, I think this concept comes up a lot where a lot of physicians are aware that nurse practitioners to a certain extent, based on a few older cases that we've covered in our book, aren't really held to the same standard as a physician. And what I find so interesting about this case And I think this will occur in cases moving forward. I'm involved in one that I'll be testifying in next year, where I think the same thing is going to happen, where it's not about the nurse practitioner being held um, to the standard of the nurse practitioner. It's about the fact that if you go into an outpatient clinic, that's a pediatric clinic, or you go into an urgent care, or you go into an emergency room, it's the standard of care that you would assume you would get under normal circumstances with physicians. And I think that's such an important point that if, if lawyers aren't making that when they do cases, I think it's really important because when you walk into an emergency room, and as you remember, Mercy had it published on their on their website that 24-7 coverage with physicians, right? 
So the expectation was you would have a physician. So then the care provided, no matter who's doing it, should be held to that physician standard. And I think that's going to become the norm moving forward as we see more and more deaths of children, um, you know, other sort of young people that were unnecessary deaths. I think there's this idea that this business of, oh, well, a nurse practitioner can't be held to the same standard is probably going to go away just because they are playing doctor and they are functioning as a doctor and they're introducing themselves now as doctors. And um, I I think that's a really important um, piece of this. And what's interesting about Wendy Wright is she's made a bit of a career, hasn't she, out of um, being an expert witness defending nurse practitioner mistakes. Could you talk a little more? I don't know if you know much about her background, but I'm sure you know more. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I don't specifically know a lot about her background, but I know that there are, I mean, there are a lot of doctors and nurse practitioners that make, a good living testifying on behalf of defendants. Uh, and I know that she had testified on multiple occasions at this time, but I'm sure she's done it a lot since now, since then, uh, testifying as to the standard of care for nurse practitioners. She'd made a lot of money doing that. Well, and the other piece of it I find so interesting, there were two things I found interesting about Wendy's deposition was the first, her differential diagnosis, which is something she was clearly never trained to do because it's completely different than the doctors. And it was really interesting to listen to, you know, there was this whole thing about when Alexis passed out that uh, Antoinette Thompson canceled the head, canceled the chest CT that she had ordered. And she really wasn't sure why, but would have been the right test and ordered right. a head, C, head CT. And, you know, Wendy did the same thing in her deposition testimony. She sort of said, well, when she passed out, it could be her head. Whereas the rest of us that are physicians were sort of saying, mm, it's not her head, it's her cardiac. It's something, you know, pulmonary or cardiac related based on her, on her vital signs. And what's interesting is even when you asked about D-dimers, I think she said something about she's not a lab expert. And I find in testimony, what's fascinating is, you know, if I, as an ER physician, I'm not an ER physician, but most ER physicians would answer, of course, I know what a D-dimer is. And of course, I know when to order it because we would have been spanked, frankly, in residency if we hadn't known those sorts of things. Those are the things that get you kicked out. And what's fascinating is in, in Wendy's mind, it was, well, no, that's outside of my scope. I don't need to know labs. I just need to know diagnosis. So if you could comment a little more about that, I would appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, and I, I know the question wasn't specific to our case, but it, it, it was important in our case because there was a blood test that came back positive for methamphetamine, but negative for amphetamine. And so, first of all, we went through those questions about, well, does she have any signs and symptoms of meth use? No, none. Well, how does the body process methamphetamine? I don't know, you know, but it did. Well, okay. Did you know that it breaks it down into amphetamine? So it's physically impossible to have methamphetamine in your blood and not amphetamine in your blood. No, I wasn't trained about that. Okay. Then why are you interpreting lab results? Why are you in a position where you're making a diagnosis based on a blood test? If you don't understand basic physiology from the blood test. So that was a, you know, and the reason that, we talked about punitive damage earlier. The way we're getting to punitive damages was the affirmative act of canceling the chest CT, right? That's an affirmative act. It's not an omission. She canceled and she did that because she thought Alexis was on meth because she relied upon this false positive that any emergency room physician would have recognized as a false positive based on its face. Set aside the fact that this was not she had zero signs and symptoms. In fact, she had low blood pressure. She had low 
she was passing out. You know, people on meth don't pass out. The test itself should have demonstrated that it was a false positive. But for a family practice nurse practitioner who has never been trained to evaluate those types of tests, went right over her head. She had no idea. She couldn't even report the signs. She didn't even recognize the signs and symptoms. And so I think, going back to your point, I think that's why it's important to talk about the standard of care in an emergency room, not the standard of care for a nurse practitioner. Because anyone that's ordering that lab test, anyone that has the authority to order that lab test, needs to have the education and experience to interpret it. Anyone that's going to form a differential diagnosis or a diagnosis based on that lab result needs to understand what it means. And so I think that's why, I think if it's presented correctly, and someone like Wendy Wright tries to say, well, that's not within my practice, scope of practice, then you use that to illustrate the gap between a nurse practitioner's training and a physician's training. Yeah, and this is exactly the problem with shortcuts, and we often hear it said all the time from advocates for independent practice for nurse practitioners that they can do the same thing because they have this nursing experience, but yet Antoinette only had 500 hours of clinical experience, which is the minimum required for nurse practitioners working providing prenatal care in a health department. And how does that give her any, I mean, there's no physician in the world that would be credentialed to work in an ER with that kind of background. Exactly. We approach this case based on, there's nothing wrong with a family practice nurse practitioner working in an emergency room. She can work on family practice issues. She shouldn't be, if you're going to have a nurse practitioner that making these type of diagnoses, they need to be an emergency certified nurse practitioner or an acute care certified nurse practitioner. And even then, they need to work collaboratively with a physician or under physician supervision. But what I, I didn't know any of this going into this case, we had, you know, I had to educate myself. So what I've learned is that a family nurse practitioner goes, in this case, it was online school. She went to an online with very little practicum. They are, their scope of practice is tiny, narrow, and they can essentially in Oklahoma act as a physician in that they're supposed to act in that really small scope of practice. And if you license and prudent and not license, but if you credential and you grant privileges to a family nurse practitioner to work outside that little sliver of her training, people die. And that's what this case was about. Really, it was about taking a license and stretching it to make money. That's, I mean, that's what we thought. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening. So as much as I hate for these things to happen and you know, nobody wants to see anybody get in trouble, this is the only way to stop this kind of behavior because patients need to make they need to get the high quality care. They don't know what where they're going. When Alexis was brought in by an ambulance, she didn't have any say in where what hospital she was going to go to or who was going to see her, and none of us will. And one of the points sometimes we're told that we're engaging in a turf war. And I always say, you know what? I, yes, I'm a physician, but I'm a patient too. And I will be a patient if I'm not one now. One day I'll be rolling in on an ambulance, you know, in a gurney. And I want to make sure that the person that's taking care of me is someone that's qualified to do the job. And I, I don't think that that's asking too much for any of us. No, and I think there's, I think nurse practitioners have an important role to fulfill. But because their training is vastly different than physicians, you can't treat them as physicians. They have to stay within their scope of practice. And what I learned from this case is their scope of practice is shockingly small. 
you know, it is very, very small and they're not qualified. I mean, and, and one of the other hospital systems in Oklahoma City uses them the way they should be used, in my opinion. They stay within their lane. They work with an under So you may have one physician in the emergency room and you may have four or five nurse practitioners. And they're all assigned different types of patients after the triage. And they're all supervised by a physician. They're not left alone in the emergency room by themselves to diagnose conditions that they were never educated or trained about. But don't you think part of the, the problem is that their true scope of practice is really small, but the way the statutes are written, like the Nurse Practice Act and, and things like that, it's so vague. It says, you know, work to the top of your license and to the top of your training and the full extent of your blah, blah, blah. And I think it's really hard for people to tease out what that scope really is. Yeah, well, I don't think it's hard if you want to do it. <laughs> I mean, if if you read the statute, it says you must stay within this in Oklahoma, and that's the only statute I've looked at, and I apologize, stay within your scope of practice. Your scope of practice is defined by your postgraduate education, right? By your, not your RN, after RN education. So if you go to a family nurse practitioner program, your scope of practice is limited to that. If you go to an acute care, you're limited to that. If you go to pediatrics, you're limited to that. I mean, a nurse practitioner knows what her scope of practice is. She knows what her lane is. I think the problem comes when an administrator says, oh, I've got a nurse practitioner, having no idea how truly narrow the scope of licensure, the scope of practice is. I'm going to put her in the ER. She's got a nurse practitioner's license. I can do that. With no real understanding of the fact that she's never seen a pulmonary embolism, right? So she can't diagnose that. You're 100% right. And again, what's just shocking is that we're seeing this happen across the country and in so, and even in, in, like I was saying, in university teaching centers, we're seeing nurse practitioners being used, in my opinion, inappropriately. And I think it is this idea of, oh, they can do everything, just let them do it. And I think a lot of it is that cost savings, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a nurse practitioner. I haven't gone to nurse practitioner school, but I think they know what their school of practice is. And I think they probably would prefer to stay within that. But when they're granted, privileges to do things that far or far broader than that. And they're put in a position where they're required to do things that are far outside their scope. They're put in a position to fail. You know? And I think rather than, I, I think they're done a disservice, and this is just my opinion, they're done a disservice by organizations that want to compare them to physicians and say they need to, that, that they can work. I think if their organizations want to truly do what's best for nurse practitioners, they focus on the scope of practice and staying within the scope of practice, not not putting their members in a position to fail. You know, it's interesting that, I mean, going back to Wendy Wright, she's a outpatient sort of family nurse practitioner on the East Coast. And so she isn't in an emergency room, but I felt like she made the opposite argument during her depositions that, you know, any nurse practitioner should be able to diagnose a pulmonary embolus and, you know, any nurse practitioner should know how to do resuscitation and, and manage emergencies. And so, um, yeah, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I found it fascinating. Definitely. She definitely did that. She, um, her opinion was that once you get a nurse practitioner's certification, you go through the nurse practitioner's education and found you you can do anything, you know, as long as you're educated and you have experience in this person. And her, she, again, fell back to the RN experience, which is, doesn't make any, I mean, I, I think it was, it was a disingenuous argument. Her position was, well, this person had been trained 
as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as a, uh, a nurse in the ER. So obviously she has experience in emergency medicine. Well, did she ever order a test as an ER nurse? Was she ever required to interpret a blood test? Did she ever form a differential diagnosis? Did she ever diagnose a PE as an RN in the emergency room? No, because those aren't functions that are performed at the RN level. And so she just basically ignored the fact that experience at the RN level does not translate to experience at the APRN level, right? As a nurse practitioner, you're asked to basically perform some of the functions of physician to do to diagnose to order tests, to interpret tests, to diagnose conditions. And those are not functions that are that you learn how to do as an ER nurse. And so the argument was disingenuous on its face because she she knew in her testimony that Antoinette Thompson was not given emergency room training in her family nurse practitioner. She was not trained in education. She was not trained how to diagnose a pulmonary embolism or which tests to order to, to kind of get around that. She said, well, she knew all that from being an ER nurse. That's, that's just, there's a gap there, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I, I think your point that many nurse practitioners want supervised practice, they want to practice within their scope, but they're being put in these really uncomfortable positions. And I agree with you. I think their leadership, the AANP, has really um, been advocating for them to practice a lot more than many of them want to. So hopefully some of their members will speak out. I know that they they find it hard to do that because their or their leadership is very vocal and loud and, and can be punitive to nurses that don't agree with that stance. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen, I remember watching on the Today Show, I don't remember the person's name, but she was a spokesman for one of the organizations and they were pushing. She described the, and this was not long after this trial, she described antiquated statutes and antiquated uh, supervision responsibilities that haven't kept up with modern education. You know, and, and if you, all you have to do is compare the education and training that goes into becoming a physician to the education and training that goes into becoming a nurse practitioner. And there's a big difference. I think they make the argument though, Travis, now that we don't need the training, right? So what I hear a lot of people saying now, and I'm sure as a medical malpractice attorney, you have an opinion about this, but which I'd love to hear. Um, but now they say that really doctors are overtrained. I mean, how hard is it to order a test and interpret it? How hard is it to get an x-ray or a CT or how hard is it to just diagnose when someone's got a sore throat? And what I, what I try to tell people is the causes of sore throat, I mean, are vast actually from something as normal as strep throat to a viral illness, all the way to Lemire's disease or Ludwig's angina, which can kill children. And so I think that's the piece that people miss is our job is to find the one in a million. And of course you see the cases where we don't, or even the one in a hundred that we don't, or we're not paying attention, but I guess my feeling is, do you think the training physicians receive is unnecessary based on what you, the work that you've done? Absolutely not. I mean, all you have to do is look at this case, you know, and, and there's an algorithm in every emergency room textbook that says, if you have any suspicion for pulmonary embolism, you order a D-dime, right? If you have any suspicion for blood clotting, you order a D-dime. But in order to get to that point, you have to recognize the signs and symptoms of blood clotting, of pulmonary embolism, of any of the other things that relate to that. And if you haven't received the training 
to recognize what a sign is, what a symptom is, then you don't know to order what test to order. And so it's easy to say, just order, you know, just order the D-dimers. Okay. But you have to understand what the signs and symptoms of the condition is before you know which test to order. Uh, and so that is, yes, we have modern technology is amazing. We have tests that can assist in diagnosis. But if you don't have the education and training to form a differential diagnosis to know what the possible causes are, if you don't recognize the signs and symptoms, then you don't know what test to order. And all you have to do is look at this case. And, and you know, any first year medical student would say, well, I'd order a D-number on that just to see, you know, and it was never done. Well, thank, I so, want to thank you for validating all of our years of training, because sometimes I, people say, well, I can do blah, 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 just like, and I think, well, why the heck I did got, I go to medical school and residency for? What did I need all that aggravation? Yeah, <laughs> There's a reason. I Google. I, can, I, can, I got Google. I don't need to go to medical school. No, I, in all seriousness, I think if the, the education and training comes in making sure that the right thing is on your differential diagnosis, and you, it's okay to have a whole bunch of stuff on there. But if you don't have the right thing on there, people are going to die. And that's where, you know, going to an online school and, you know, and doing whatever it was, 30 weeks, of, you know, that's, that is not the equivalent. So great to talk to you. We're just, we really admire your work so much yeah. and we appreciate the diligence that you put into uncovering. I mean, this case was just so illustrative of every single issue that we've dealt with in this discussion. It was just the perfect case to use for the book because all sorts of different scenarios that are happening across the country were described in this case. Well, let me say to you guys, I really, and I know Marlon and Amy were very, very moved by the way you used Alexis's story to illustrate the problems that, you know, are brought about by overextending nurse practitioners. And, and I know that they would want me to, to thank you guys for telling Alexis's story because that was really important to them and to me. Well, thank you so very much. You. And if you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Of course, subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. And if you're interested in helping out, you can join Physicians for Patient Protection, our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.